Hey everyone, hooray for episode two of the Adventist Millennial Podcast. Uh, thank you for tuning in and listening to me sermonize you. Um, at least this way you can be driving somewhere or cleaning your house or something and you're not stuck looking at my face and being forced to respond. Or maybe that's just a projection. Uh, first, I just want to say something because it is Friday. I have every Friday off work, which sounds really nice, but practically speaking, it's just one more opportunity for me to be the actual worst. Like, I always tell myself during the week that Friday is the day I'm going to get so much done, and then usually I don't even shower until like 3 p.m., and I'm lucky if I wash the dishes in the sink and forget about even, like, putting them away. Does anybody else have this problem of getting super hyped about a window of time that you have coming up where you can get a lot of stuff done and then as soon as that window of time arrives you're like hey sitting down and doing nothing sounds really good (laughs) and the weird thing is I'm mad at myself the whole time I'm sitting down playing gardenscapes on my phone and then when I'm being productive I'm like yeah this is awesome this is so good but then I can't actually convince myself that that's true and so I don't ever do anything Even if my alarm goes off at like 5 a.m. and I get up and I kick butt for several hours and I accomplish all kinds of stuff and I'm super productive, then still by like 9 in the morning I'm lying down again and it's 6 p.m. before I know it and I've watched 12 episodes of Hell's Kitchen. Like, why does this happen, you guys? Why am I so lazy? Is it a mental illness? Um, Does this happen to anybody else and what do you guys do to remedy it? Because I certainly have not figured out the solution. (laughs) But anyway, today we're going to talk about um, finding community in the Adventist church as a young person, Uh, what to do if you're not lucky enough to live in one of the college towns with a lot of Adventists. Uh, We're going to talk about having a religious life or a relationship with God and what that looks like. And then we're going to talk about something a little provocative that I like to call Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't about the gays. So let's get to it. Okay, so I was talking to someone the other day, shout out, you know who you are, about the fact that unless you live in Loma Linda, Keene, Collegedale, Berrien Springs, Lincoln, etc., um, it's likely that you're going to be stuck with the best case scenario, a handful of Adventist church choices, or worst case scenario, only one. Or none, but I think if you live in the U.S., there is at least one in driving distance. I hope that's true. If it's not and you're the unlucky person, well, I don't know, shout me down or something. Uh, But even then, if there is one and it's basically the actual worst, what then? Um, Outside of the college towns where there are Adventists running around all over the place, if you want Adventist friends, a lot of times you're pretty much just stuck with who you get because there aren't a lot of people around to choose from. Um, And let's face it, there are so few people our age that go to church at all that in a congregation of like 300 people, you probably really only have one or two people who overlap in your demographic or have personality traits that you get along with. So, you don't have friends at church. And then there's the question of whether going to church is even worth it if you don't get anything out of it, if it's boring or like more draining than uplifting. And... I mean, I've heard the line about, well, don't you don't go to church for friends, you go to church to worship God. Well, okay, but I can worship God anytime or any place I want. The point of church is for the community aspect of our relationship with God. And if that community is, to put it bluntly, just garbage, what are you supposed to do? The other thing I've been told is church isn't supposed to be for you to get something out of it. It's for you to give something. And 
Of course, I think that's a good way to look at it, but I also don't think it should be a justification of having the least compelling, most painfully excruciating church environments. Plus, if you've ever tried to do something interesting or new or innovative, something that's actually engaging, um, in a group of people who seem to be working very hard to maintain the status quo and not do anything to disrupt the way things have always been done, um, then you know that, well, I mean, let's just say water gun at the sun.jpg. You can try to do something new, but chances are you'll just exhaust yourself and get so frustrated that you draw penises on every page of the hymnal and then you do donuts in the gravel parking lot before peeling out and speeding away and never coming back. Um, so what do you do? Well, the short answer is I don't really know, but I guess a lot of people don't know because otherwise it wouldn't be such a problem. Maybe it's a compelling idea to start going to a non-Adventist church in your area that actually has people your age in a community you can engage with. But if you're like me and you do find value in what Adventism brings to the table, maybe you're a little bit hesitant to do that. Uh, I do have a couple of ideas. The first idea is move, dum-da-da-dum. There you go, problem solved. Uh, If that was a feasible solution and you just hadn't thought of it until I said it just now, you're welcome. But if for some reason that's not a feasible solution and you're stuck where you are for better or worse, that is partly why I'm trying to start this Adventist millennial thing. Ever since I was like 13 and I discovered internet fandoms, I've always been at the very least an observer and at most a participant in some kind of online community. Whether it's a forum, via social media, live streams, Google Hangouts, whatever, uh, what have you. Part of this is because it creates interaction with other people that doesn't require me to leave the house, which is always a win, Um, and partly because the internet is accessible to so many people that there's a much higher chance that you'll be able to find a niche group of people that you have a lot in common with. It may take time to find those people, but they're probably there. It used to be that meeting people online or having online friends had this stigma around it because all of the online people were probably like these basement-dwelling weirdos who couldn't get friends in real life, and that's why they resorted to the internet. And maybe that was true to some extent. I mean, hey, if my parents had had a basement in 2003, I definitely would have been dwelling in it. Uh, But nowadays, the ubiquity of like online dating and social media uh, makes it not quite as weird to have friends that are not IRL friends. So, because online circles are my kind of circles, I'm familiar with them, my hope is that I can make a place for people who have similar interests and wants within the Adventist context, uh, wherever we are geographically, and we can find each other and create that community. Now, I realize that this won't necessarily help with the day-to-day of having friends that you can hang out with and grab lunch with, um, but ultimately, if we can create a foundational community that gives us a place to get fed, um, then we can turn around and feed others in our own geographic locations. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if you could have an online place for people to come together, talk, struggle through their ideas, um, and grow and learn, and then take the energy that they've gotten from that and expend it trying to give that same sense of group to the people around them who are looking for it. I know it's not a complete and immediate answer to the question, but like, why not see what happens? Um, we have really amazing technology today that we're not using in the context of church community. At least from what I've seen, we're not doing it very well.
so maybe we can try taking a page from like the gaming community and see what we can do with all of these various ways of communicating. Um, wouldn't it be awesome if we could set up like a server or a live stream and get people together to share about our lifestyle and our culture and talk about things that are important to us? I think it would be really exciting and I don't see a lot of people doing it. Plus, even if you do live in a college town like I do, I live in Adventist Mecca, Loma Linda, it can still be hard to find people that you really can get on the same page with. Um, so message me on Instagram, let me know what you look for in community and what's important to you in religion and maybe why you're not getting that in your local church. Okay, now let's talk about what a relationship with God looks like, practically speaking. Um, growing up as Christians, we're told a lot of things about what a relationship with God looks like, but is it always the same for everyone, and is it the same at every stage in your life? Like, does it mean reading your Bible for one hour every day at 4 a.m.? Does it mean handing out tracts to people at the grocery store whether they want them or not? Does it mean going to church, vespers, prayer meeting, AY, church camp out, all of the above? Um, does it mean simply holding the belief that God is real and letting that be enough and just living your life? I mean, there are a lot of ways that people act out their religion or their belief in God. And it's kind of difficult, a nebulous sort of thing, because of the fact that God is not physically present in our lives, and our relationship with Him is not like our relationship with the rest of reality. In fact, you can't even prove that God exists. Even if you could, who's to say that what we think we know about him is accurate? Especially considering every religion and denomination has a different idea about who they think God is. If you're someone who struggles with knowing whether God is even real, uh, that's probably a good place to start because you have to know something about someone before you can be invested in a relationship with that person. My guess is if you're here, at least you probably aren't 100% hostile to the idea of God, but you may still question the nature of who he is or what you've been told about him. Um, does the idea of God contradict science the way science puts it forth? Does your experience contradict what you've been taught? Um, if you're an intellectually inclined person, I definitely think it's worthwhile to spend some time on what philosophers throughout history have argued for and against the existence of God. Um, and if you're not so much concerned with the arguments surrounding God, maybe it's a good idea to try and see him working in your life and impacting your experience. What I was always told growing up was that in order to have a relationship with God, you have to read the Bible every day, you have to pray, you have to go to church, and maybe you can read some devotional or supplemental stuff, but really it's better just to stick with the Bible because there are a lot of wrong ideas floating around out there that are dangerous because you could be deceived at any point just at the drop of a hat. But if you listen to episode one, you know that this attitude has always irked me. In the times of my life when I have faithfully read the Bible, prayed, and tried to actively seek out a relationship with God, yes, it has given me a sense of comfort and stability in my faith. But the truth is that no matter who you are or what you believe, the Bible has to be interpreted. Written language, and especially translated written language, is never going to completely convey an idea in full in the same way to every person. And people have told me, well, the Bible is a living, spiritual, supernatural book that God uses to speak to you what you need to hear when you need to hear it. Uh, okay, I'm not discounting that that might be true, 
But doesn't that also take away our responsibility to think and try to understand and make sense of who God is based on what we know about him, rather than just looking for some kind of magical inspiration? I really believe if you're earnestly seeking to know who God is with an open mind, he will lead you there. But I also think it's our responsibility to look critically at what we've been told and see if it's consistent, and if it isn't, to ask why. Reading the Bible is a great place to start. Praying at any step of your journey, I think, is essential. Again, go listen to episode one if you haven't. But I also think that there's a lot of unexplored space for us to continue understanding God that historically we've been too afraid to do for fear of being deceived. The way I pursue my relationship with God is, yes, reading the Bible and praying, but also thinking about how science, culture, politics, history, all of this stuff fits into what I believe about our greater purpose as humanity and trying to relate those to what I know about God and if what I know about him still makes sense amidst the incoming information that I get every day. A lot of times the way people describe a relationship with God, it's very compartmentalized with doctrines we subscribe to in one space and our actual lives in a different space. Um, What I mean is uh, trying to apply the underlying philosophy uh, beneath the doctrines that we believe to the rest of our lives is not thought of or really even, it could be downright rejected in a lot of cases. So, if it's religious, it's religious. If it's practical, it's practical. And maybe they overlap a little bit in how we act because uh, of how we see sin, but usually it's pretty separate. If we believe one thing about the nature of God that defies what we believe about human relationships, like, that's fine. It feels like if we believe God is willing to kill those who disobey him, that has no relation to how we see a human who is also willing to kill someone for disagreeing. The standards we have for our relationship with God are often different standards we have uh, for interhuman relationships, but I don't think life and religion are separate. Like, if your religion becomes so prescribed by religious doctrine that it becomes incomprehensible to someone who hasn't been also immersed in it, then is that even the gospel? Jesus spoke to people about their lives in a way that they could relate to. He talked about the principles of life that could be applied and lived out. He didn't constantly discuss the theoreticals of how he expected prophecy to play out in the future or why everyone simply had to comply with long-accepted truth. In fact, he constantly bucked the status quo of the Jewish system. So my suggestion is... Don't separate your religious experience from your life experience and consciously try to put your whole existence through the test of does this confirm what I understand about God or chip away at how I see God and what does that mean? So pray, read, go to church, talk about it with friends, of course, all of these things, um, but also constantly try to fit your understanding of God into the reality around you and see if that changes how you understand him. And take the pressure off yourself of just performing the rituals of reading and praying and all of that and refocus on the question, am I understanding the world and living in it better because of how I understand God? Okay, are you guys ready to piss off like everyone at the same time? I think with this next topic, if I'm lucky, both the traditional Adventists and the super liberal Adventists will be raging at me. So here we go. You know that old story, the one that we all read and giggled at in primary Sabbath school because, oh my gosh, the town is trying to gang rape two angels? What? And now Lot is trying to get his daughters gang raped? What? 
I don't know about you, well, I have kind of a good guess, but when I was growing up, I always heard that God went all scorched earth on Sodom and Gomorrah because the gays. Um, and look, we can talk more generally about the gays later, but regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, really? You have an angry mob of townsfolk surrounding Lot's house and demanding guests of the town be welcomed by being violated in every way. And the usual explanation of what they did wrong is, well, you know, God doesn't really like it when a guy feels tingly for another guy. Um, it sounds like God really has his priorities straight if being gay was his main gripe with this bunch of people. And maybe you're saying right now, well, you know, there were much more sins happening and things wrong in Sodom and Gomorrah than just homosexuality, but that was definitely part of it. And I would say part of it, part of it, Today's lexicon uses the word sodomy synonymously with getting it on with another dude. It's not used synonymously with, say, gathering up all the town ruffians and surrounding your neighbor's house to threaten and yell at him. I'm just saying, if your main takeaway from this story is gay gang rape is bad and hetero gang rape is probably still bad but not as bad, you might want to revisit, I don't know, the entire gospel. In fact, I'm thinking this particular condemnation had exactly zero to do with homosexuality at all. That's right, you heard me. Uh, now that I have all of the conservative Adventists clenching in their chairs, let's hit the other side. I'm going to go out on, on a limb and say, um, when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, God was sending a shot across the bow to, dum dum dum, social justice warriors, uh, among others. Feel your blood boil, empathy-driven folk. I'm talking about social justice, what fights for equality for all, and shouts, love trumps hate, um, and forms anti-fascist groups that go around punching Nazis. Yes, I would suggest that those guys are the real sodomites. Why, you ask? Well, because if it wasn't simply being a bunch of homos, what was it that Sodom did wrong? Conveniently for us, Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50 actually gives us a list of Sodom's sins. Um, it says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Let's just take a little gander at some of the similarities between SJWs and Sodom and Gomorrah. 1. Pride. Social justice warriors are usually these young, uh, idealistic people who take on righteous indignation because they can see everything that's wrong in the world and they want to right those wrongs. If you've ever had a run-in with one, you know they can come in guns blazing telling everyone else how they're wrong, hateful, privileged, bigoted, whatever it is. Uh, but no matter what reason or explanation someone may have for the opinion that they hold, they're wrong. Social justice warriors know that they're right. Uh, two, excessive food. I don't think I need to say anything more than look up fat acceptance Twitter and enough said. Three, prosperous ease. Sodom was known for its prosperity per Genesis 13, 11, and 12, and so are we in the U.S. If you are living in USA in hashtag current year, um, you're on the prosperous ease train. This country has been more prosperous than any other, and Pew studies show that over the last 50 years, we've been living in a time when poverty is being reduced quickly around the world. 
I think in one of the studies I was looking at, it said that poverty was re reduced by 26% from 2001 to 2011. That is crazy. Um, and simply the fact that you're listening to this right now and not replastering dirt onto your stick hut is a hint that America lives in prosperous ease. But even that is not good enough for SJWs. Okay, four. They did not aid the poor and the needy. Now, if there's one thing you might want to argue with on this list, it might be that, hey, wait a minute, social justice is all about helping the poor and the needy, right? But hold on, what do you think of when you think of SJWs? What are they always shouting about and in the news for? Perhaps you read this headline recently. Group of 2000 Antifa spent the day working in a soup kitchen. Uh, yeah, I didn't think so. More like you read something about riots, throwing Molotov cocktails, punching people they disagree with, or demanding other people contribute to fix the injustices that they see. Or maybe you've seen racism watchdog patrolling Twitter, barking at people who say things that are perceived as problematic. If SJWs actually wanted to help the poor and the needy, maybe they would spend their time doing that instead of trying to force everyone else to do it and saying that they're righting wrongs. Five, Sodom was haughty. Do, uh, I don't know about you, but I've seen all kinds of haughty people sliding up in everybody Facebook comments telling them that they're, they're invalidating some minority's experience and to kindly STF you. Um, unless you've experienced exactly what they've experienced, you can't say one single word about anything because you don't know. Six, they did an abomination. Um, a lot of people say that this is the part that's referring to the spooky gays. Um, I might make a different argument, but that's a different podcast. What I will say is, who is it that keeps adding letters onto LGBTQIAP, otherkin, two-spirited, minor-attracted persons? Like, at what point do you call something an abomination? So now that I've thoroughly angered everyone on the Adventist continuum, let's go back to what was actually happening in the story. It said every young and old man in town mobbed up to beat down Lot's door and coercively have their way. Tell me that that is not the bad part. Mobs are machines that impose their will on people who don't bow to the hive mind, and you can't reason with a mob. Just try telling Twitter to kindly take a chill pill about literally anything. Um, I'll wait while you see how that works out for you. Lot trying to reason with the mob did not do him any good either. It wasn't isolated to Sodom, though, this mob mentality. Where else do we see it in the Bible? Uh, the angry mob that wanted to stone Mary Magdalene, the legion of demons that was driven into swine, the mob that demanded Aaron build them a golden calf, uh, the mob that demanded Jesus' death. Mobs are not good, you guys, and I challenge you to name me one time when a mob acted for good. It doesn't happen. Mobs take away responsibility because in a group, people become faceless and their personal risk goes down because responsibility is diffused across the group. In his book, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, Gustave Le Bon says, The disappearance of the conscious personality, the predominance of the unconscious personality, the turning by means of suggestion and contagion of feelings and ideas in an identical direction, the tendency to immediately transform the suggested ideas into acts, these, we see, are the principal characteristics of the individual forming a part of a crowd. He is no longer himself, but has become an automaton who has ceased to be guided by his will. So, 
Laban says that when you're in a crowd, you lose your identity and your will. The crowd becomes highly suggestible and easily coerced. Um, and this is exactly what God doesn't want to happen to us. He wants us to be free and to choose to do the right things because we understand that those things makes us, make us stronger people and give us more joy. God says, come and let us reason together in Isaiah 1.18. And Satan says, do what I say or I'll kill you in Revelation 13.15. Um, if you make a personal choice every single day to live up to your principles like Lot did, you're much harder to coerce than if you become a faceless, suggestible one of many in a crowd. Now, you may say, yeah, I don't really go in for all that mobby Antifa stuff, and, you know, maybe that's true if you really just love people and want to see better for everyone, that's awesome. I'm just saying take a careful look around you. If you ever find yourself swept up in a group of people who tend to create a mob of outrage or are nearing the tactics of coercion often used by social justice warriors, stop and ask yourself, is this a mob of sodomites bent on getting their way? even to the detriment of their own character. Always keep at the very forefront of your mind that God wants freedom because you can't experience real love without the choice to reject it, even if that means he risks us doing terrible things and hurtful things toward other people. Satan just wants to control everyone and tell them that that's where freedom really lies, but God wants us to actually be free. In every case I've seen, however pious or well-intentioned the argument may proclaim to be, the results of the philosophies that drive social justice, hint, it's cultural Marxism, um, they always tend toward cre creating mobs that coerce people who disagree with them. This is exactly what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the mob wanted to coercively get their selfish way, and no amount of reason would dissuade them. So, go ahead, mob up on me for saying it, you bunch of sodomites. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But for real, I would like to hear what you think, if you disagree, if you agree. Uh, my default is always to say what I see, even if it's provocative and it's a little bit spicy at times. But if you have a really good reason why I'm wrong, I want to hear it so I can continue learning and growing. So hit me up on Instagram and Twitter. It's at SDA Millennial. And if you enjoy this podcast, definitely feel free to review it on iTunes and share it with people you think might also enjoy it. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening and I'll catch you all next week.